one of my favorite clips in the last lecture that we're going to show you right now. Now, the great thing about this piece of the video is that it shows up in the book a couple decades later. When Randy Pausch himself is a professor, is a teacher, and he runs into a student very much like who he himself was. This is a very arrogant student who, um, in Randy Pausch's classes, what they, what they did was he ranked people according to quartile, not just their grades or their product, but also according to process. He ranked them according to their ability to play well with each other. He ranked them in the four quartiles according to how well they listened to each other how well they played and worked together. And he called in this arrogant student to his office who was ranked in the last quartile. And this student was so arrogant, Randy Power said, that he was convinced that, yeah, maybe he was in the last quartile, but he was like, you know, like 24, 25% maybe. And really that almost made him in like the second to last quartile. Randy Power said, no, you are the last You are 50 out of 50 in terms of your ability to play well with each other. You're the worst. And this arrogant student, his jaw dropped. He was shocked. He couldn't believe that he was ranked by his peers as the one who listened the worst. And this is where Randy Pausch found his teachable moment. He said, I used to be just like you. I was in denial. But I had a professor who showed me he cared by smacking the truth into my head. And here's what makes me special. I listened to him. And Randy Pausch continues, I admit it, I'm a recovering jerk. And that gives me the moral authority to tell you that you can be a recovering jerk too. The student listened. He got better. He started listening to others. He started to be able to play better with others and work better with them. He started listening beyond himself. Now, next week in my message, the third in this series, I'm going to talk about facing your life, affirming your death. I'm going to be talking about one of my mentors, Reverend Dr. Forrest Church, who I know quite a number of you heard this past week on Fresh Air on Terry Gross's show on NPR. And if you haven't, I really, really recommend that you go to the website, to Fresh Air's website, and listen to what Forrest was talking about. So I'm going to hold a lot of what he said until next week because Forrest is living in this space right now where he has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he's still listening. He's still teaching. And he's still reaching out. I want to go back to well over a decade ago from this point when I was the student slash seminarian at Unitarian Church of All Souls in New York City, the Unitarian religious community that ordained me to the ministry. And I was reporting to Forrest on a regular basis. He was sort of my supervisor, but really my mentor. And he asked me a question one day. We were sitting in his office, and it was just the place was reeking of cigar and pipe smoke because that's what Forrest used to do. And he asked the question as he was taking this big inhale, this big drag on his pipe. How are you doing? How are you doing? And I was not doing well. I was not doing well because I was facing what I thought was a recurrence of the depression that had really laid me low a year and a half before. But I thought, I can't let this get a handle on me because I have too much stuff to do. And I can't let him see the fact that I am struggling because then I will be found to be lacking in his eyes. And so what I started doing right away is I started listing my accomplishments, the classes I was teaching and the courses I was teaching at, uh, at All Souls and how well I was still doing at seminary and school. And I was wearing that great competency mask because I didn't want to show him that Inside, I was like a little frightened animal, in fact. 
And he could see, though. That's the great thing about wonderful teachers, great mentors. They can see right through you. And he cut me off. He said, you know what? You can't do this job without joy. You can't do this job without joy. And it felt like I could breathe for the first time in like three months. Because he saw right through me and I needed to be seen. I didn't get better instantaneously, but in that moment there, I saw the truth of where my life was, and I knew I could listen to myself because I knew I would be listened to as well. That recovering jerk student, he needed to listen beyond himself. I needed to listen to myself, but both our lives needed to change. Now, all of us, all of you in some ways, we're all called to life change, whether in small ways or large ways, at various times throughout our lives. At Wellsprings, we put it this way, that one of our core beliefs is just as the caterpillar contains the seeds of the butterfly yet to be, that each of us is called and has the potential for new life within each and every one of you. It's like Bob Dylan sang, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. Forest Church, I think, is one of those ones who says, by the way, that even if you are busy dying, you are still busy being born if you're awake and you're alive and present. It's why we call our 2.0 class, one of our foundational small groups here at Wellsprings, listening to our lives. Because when we listen to our lives, then we have the opportunity to flourish. Then we have the opportunity to grow. But it starts with that awakening that starts in saying, I am going to pay attention. Because listening to our lives really comes from a much more ancient term, one that Unitarian Universalists don't use very often, but it still is an incredibly important name, a disciple. Disciple, we tend to think, especially if you're raised in a Catholic or Christian tradition, you think of the 12 disciples, and that can be maybe a little bit scary to you if you left that tradition. But before disciple was a noun, it was an adjective. And before that, it was a verb. Because a disciple is one who listens. That's what it means to be a disciple, to listen. Listening to our lives is the necessary precondition to any real change that will happen to us and live through us. Now, listening to our lives is not, is not, Horace, please raise your hand. It is not like what Horace did this morning. (laughs) See, Horace doesn't listen to his life. He recites his life. He repeats his life. The past tense is the present tense. There is no distance between what has happened and what might now possibly happen. There is no progress. He doesn't learn from the past. He just recites it. Unlike Horace, we can be. We can imagine a future beyond what has come about already. And it comes through things like confession and honesty, forgiveness, humility. These are tools not for our victimhood, but for our healing, for our honest understanding of our lives. It is the most real redemption, the most real definition of redemption that I know. And it is this. It is that through looking and listening and understanding our lives, we have the true capacity to understand who we are and what we have done so that when we find ourselves in the next time, sort of like Forrest, excuse me, Horace did today, he had the opportunity to change. He didn't take it. That's what redemption means, broken down into very very much this worldly kinds of terms, is to recognize our past to find ourselves in the same kind of situation that we were in before, except do it differently this time. Learn and apply the lessons, and through applying those lessons, grow. Doing it differently the next time. This requires paying attention. 
allowing ourselves to see life anew. One of the ways we do that is by avoiding cliches. And this is one of the places where if you've either seen or read the book of the last lecture, I really disagree with Randy Pausch. He loves to teach, he says, through cliches. He says, because too often students these days are so young, they don't know the cliches, so it sounds like he's just spinning wonderful wisdom to them for the first time. (laughs) But cliches, although they are unavoidable, they are ultimately resistible. Because they get us locked in, if that's all we use to grow by, they get us locked into using the world and seeing the world by rote. Obscure, obscuring rather than revealing. Give you an example of the cliche I heard the other day. The curse of Billy Penn. How many of you know that? The curse of Billy Penn. All right. It was the idea that's because 25 years ago, when in Center City they started to build skyscrapers larger than the top of the Billy Penn, William Penn statue on the top of City Hall, that at that point, Philadelphia would never win another major sports championship. We're told, relievedly, the curse of Billy Penn is over. 25 years does not a sports curse make. (laughs) Any Cubs fans here in the house today? A hundred years. 1908 to 2008. And one of the political blog sites that I've been reading obsessively over the last couple months said, imagine in 1908 that you said to a Cubs fan, just after they had won that World Series, that America... Before the Cubs will win their next World Series, America will elect a black man to the presidency (laughs) before you're going to win another World Series. A hundred years, we can start talking curses then. Any Red Sox fans in the house here today? All right, your curse is over with. Congratulations, it came at the expense of my beloved Yankees. But this is still part of your history. Bucky blanking Dent, Bill Buckner. Aaron Boone, coming that close all those years, and in sometimes the most bizarre of ways, the most bizarre of ways, not being able to grasp that brass ring. We can talk curses a little bit right there. But even i got to tell you what's called the curse of the Bambino, Bambino, tracing back to Babe Ruth. It says, and of course everyone knows this, right, if you know your little bit of baseball history, That Harry Frizee, the owner of the Red Sox, sold Babe Ruth to finance a Broadway play, mortgaging his soul and the soul of the Red Sox for 86 years after that to finance the play No, No, Nanette that is not performed anymore. (laughs) It's not true. It's not true. No, No, Nanette was not even put on Broadway till about six years after, six years after Babe Ruth was traded to the Yankees. If you read the history, actually the reason is is that they thought, the owners thought, we've got about as much from this inveterate drunk, Babe Ruth, as we ever will. Time to unload him. It also had something to do with the post-World War I economics of the time that they were strapped for cash up in Boston because of the regional economy. I'm not going to bore you with that stuff. But still, the point, the point is this. Sometimes when we talk about curses or superstitions, We don't want to let a few inconvenient facts get in the way of a good story. It's like John Ford, the man who shot Liberty Valance. You know that? When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Well, actually, this historical footnote about this superstition, it is not a footnote at all. It is actually very much related to what I'm talking about today. And it's about listening to experience so that we are able to change. The curse of the Bambino 
for so many decades was told in Boston around the country as a way of explaining it's nothing is in our hands. It's this sort of metaphysical thing that happens to us and we are the victims. Not me as a Yankee fan, obviously not. I was the oppressor. But as Red Sox fans, we are the victims. Of course, there was horrendous, bizarre bad luck and maybe the baseball gods were not smiling on the Red Sox all the time. But if you read the history of the, of the Boston Red Sox, it is replete with mismanagement and nepotism and more than anything else from the 1940s on, absolutely unrepentant racism. Unrepentant racism. Do you know that Willie Mays was first tried out by the Boston Red Sox? But they were so blinded by their racism that they could not believe that their center field could be patrolled by a black man. And not just that, if you know anything about baseball, perhaps the best baseball player ever to lace up his spikes. That's the truth. That is the truth of the Boston Red Sox, and it gets beyond superstition. But they were not able to listen. They were not able to change. They were locked into that pattern of living, and they paid the cost for it. And that brings us to where we are today. After this absolutely historic election. After this past Tuesday. And I'm not talking policy here today. I'm not talking about why you did or should have or might have or didn't support Obama over McCain. I'm not talking about policy. I'm talking about history. Less than 45 years ago, a good portion of American life was governed according to the same laws as apartheid. Think about that. Less, fewer than 45 years ago, a good portion of America, and a large portion beyond that, de facto, even if it wasn't in the law, was basically apartheid. The election of Barack Obama to the presidency it is a major part of the realization of this promise of what we call America. And it exists in this. The recognition that our history, unlike Horace's personal history, that we can understand it, and we should understand it, but we don't have to run from it, but we're also not trapped by it. The past is not exactly what will be. Just a week before the election, I read this very odd article. I think it was on Politico.com. It was very, very interesting. It was an odd article about black separatist nationalist leaders and white supremacist racist leaders and who they were supporting for the election. And all the white supremacists were supporting Barack Obama. And all the black nationalists, at least the ones in this article, were supporting John McCain. Doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? But it does. It does. Because if you build your identity upon grievance rather than hope, and if history, your history is all there is, and you believe that history is fixed and will never change, then you have a vested stake in having things stay exactly as they were, so they will stay as they are, and they will stay as they will be forever. That's why those who built their identity upon grievance, upon their victimhood, didn't want to see things change. Think about the people, and perhaps you've been one of these people. I know I have been at times. Think about the people you know who whine the most. 
Think about the people you know who complain the most. Oh, they talk. (laughs) We talk. And yet nothing ever seems to change. We complain so much. Sometimes the whiners and complainers, the past is exactly as the present's going to be. Because we give ourselves that illusion of control. But in fact, to complain about things and build an identity based only upon victimhood is to say implicitly that we are totally disempowered. That we cannot change anything about our lives. There is no progress, no learning, no transformation, no transcending the past. That's why this past week we realized the better part of the American dream that a difficult history needs not birth a tragic present. History is not over and racism is not over and racial animosity is not over. But we have showed ourselves that we can listen to history and we can learn from it and we can correct it. We can even, dare we say, redeem it. Obama is not a saver. He's a politician. He will disappoint, I say as one of his supporters, he will disappoint me and pretty bitterly from time to time, I'm sure. But the election symbolizes that we may and that we are learning to forge something new in this amazing experiment that we call America. So there is so much promise and there is so much change and there's so much learning that we have done. But just like if any of you have ever been at a Seder, you know there's a part in the Seder where you're reciting the the joys and the blessings of the ancient story of the liberation from Egypt and you pour off a cup of your rejoicing because you recognize not all are in joy. You recognize it is not all happiness and truth and wisdom and light. There are still those who suffer. And so my joy this week was very much leavened. I stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning to find the results on that day. My joy is very much leavened by what happened in California, by the passage of Prop 8. And a state, for the first time, has just stripped parts of its citizens, same-sex couples, of the right to marriage. I want to show you who those people are afraid of right now. I want to show you who those people are afraid of. This is Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. Fifty years they were together. Fifty years they were together. And that's their marriage by the mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom. Fifty years they were together. And Dell died a couple months back. And, and she was in her 90s and lived an amazing life. I'm grateful that she had the opportunity to rest in peace, married to the person that she loved and pledged her heart and her life too. This couple's marriage threatens our marriage, Teresa. This gives me something to aspire to. This gives all of us who believe in constancy and in commitment and in pledging our lives to another person for life. And I failed that once before. I'm not going to fail this time. It gives us the opportunity to aspire to something. And so, this battle for marriage equality, it's not over. It's not over. And at some point, it's coming to Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's coming to our backyard. And I hope that you will stand with me when the chance to fight comes around. To fight for full equality for all American citizens. 
Now, if you find yourself resistant, if you find yourself resistant to full equality for same-sex couples, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it, you and me. Let's talk about it amongst ourselves here. I was not always the advocate that I am now, to be honest with you. I had to grow. I had to overcome some of my own privilege of what it is to be a white, straight male that has so many things just laid out before him in this life. I do believe that. It took me a while to get to where I am. It took growth. It took recognizing my own blinders. But even more, even more to follow what the prophet Isaiah said, come let us reason together. Let us not be led by fear. Come let us reason together. Even more though, if you find yourself as I do now fully convinced That same-sex couples should have absolutely the same full rights as every other American. If you find yourself burning, as I do within me, that this is a non-negotiable commitment. If you find yourself believing that, but then say, well, I'm not sure if I really want to engage. I want to ask you, how can you and how can we accept second-class citizenship? How can we accept that? How can we accept... What really comes in many ways from religious bigotry. Or that feeling that it makes some people feel icky, you know? Icky that two people of the same gender would make love. To just stand there, to just stand there resting upon our privilege when we know something wrong is happening. That's just lazy. And I believe that we who possess privilege and rights will never be who we are intended to be until we examine the ways in which we are lazy, until we examine and awaken to the fact that we would wish our status for everyone. Because love is about, obviously, so much more than just sex. It's about character and commitment and responsibility and love and about the most ancient virtues that can expand to accommodate new realities. Because those things point to our calling to flourish as human beings. Now, fortunately, the grace note this week is this. That marriage equality belongs to the future. As sure as I'm standing here, marriage equality belongs to the future because young people, younger than me, <laughs> I'm 38. You look at the polling numbers, it's there. It's going to happen. It's going to happen nationally because they are liberal and conservative. They are believer and non-believer, and they look upon our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters and see brothers and sisters and see moms and dads, and they see fellow workers, and they see fellow worshipers and say, what is the big deal about segregating out this one class of Americans for scorn and blame? What is the big deal with this? Let's get over it already. Let that bigotry remain in the past. And let's expand the definition of who is truly a member, a full member of our American citizenship. There have been so many amazing things accomplished in this country. And there is so much more to do. So much more for us to do. So let's rest in the moment and realize what's here. And let's go forward in the work that we need to do together. Now let's take a breath. I'm going to take a drink of water while I take a breath. (laughs) 
big part of the adjustment from the last couple weeks of the election. And before that, the Phillies win. Now let's give that one more cheer. <laughs> big part of where we are now is sort of moving beyond those things. <laughs> moving back into the regular rhythms of life. For me, it's not obsessively checking 538.com every single morning for a good hour. A lot of spectacular things have happened. Spectacular comes from that word spectacle. To see spectacular things, to experience the spectacle is amazing. But the problem is we can become addicted to the spectacle. We expect only the high points. And sometimes we get a little fidgety when we move back into ordinary life. The Anglo-Catholic tradition has a wonderful phrase for that that I love, and it's how they structure their spiritual practice. I think it has a lot to teach us. They call all the time not on the holidays or the holy days or the feast days. They call it in this wonderful little phrase, ordinary time. Most of our lives is ordinary time. It's just there, and we think nothing special is happening, but it is. Because it is in ordinary time that our lives can change most significantly. And I laugh so much and love when Randy Pausch calls himself a recovering jerk. Because if you've been around for a little while, you know that part of my story is that I'm in recovery. That 12-step work in my life has so much formed who I am. And actually, if I can take just a second and plug myself right now, it's also the next book that I'm going to be publishing sometime in the next couple of years, another collection, editorial thing that I'm doing also that I'm authoring about the experience of Unitarian Universalists who have grown through their 12-step work. So myself plug aside. Sorry, maybe we'll edit that out of the, uh, of the recording. <laughs> One of the signature parts of 12-step work is this, taking moral inventory regularly, taking, as they say, fearless moral inventory. At Wellsprings, we want to equip all of us, all of you, for fearless moral inventory. This is how we put it in our DNA, in our core values. We talk about living with integrity, that we are a community of deep listening, possessing the humility and the vulnerability necessary so that we are able to make positive change. We honestly evaluate where we are in the hope of courageously going where we are called to be. I'm going to repeat that. We honestly evaluate where we are in the hope of courageously going where we are called to be. I can think of no more important work, work that we do as individuals and work we do together corporately. I've told many of my colleagues that this is the most fun I've ever had in ministry because I have never been held so accountable by the leaders in this congregation. And it comes from the fact that we take inventory. And not just mine, we take each other's inventory as well too. Because this is about what we are growing here much more than me. It is about all of us. We are designed to be a place where you can listen. And after listening, learning. And after learning, then applying. This is what we are designed to be as a spiritual community for you, for all of us, where you can take inventory regularly. The first way that we offer this is we encourage all of us, all of you, to have a regular spiritual practice. Regular spiritual practice is the way that we become disciples of life. It is the way that we listen to life regularly. 
It is the way that we come to understand the content of our characters, the content of our minds, the contours and the shapes of our hearts and our souls, so that we are not blind to ourselves, but in fact, in following that ancient, ancient virtue, know thyself. Listen to thyself, and you will learn and grow. The second is our small group experience, our springboards. There is, I think, no better way to have a laboratory for our discipling through our listening and our learning than being in community regularly, the practice of gathering. Being here as you are now, and we encourage people to take that a step deeper into our springboards, into our small groups. The hope is that we can remain teachable by each other, through each other, with each other. Taking inventory, honestly, I believe, and my experience has been, happens most productively when we are in a community of people who can lovingly say BS to us when we need to hear it. People who love us enough to continue to help us change and grow. See, when we share life with others, we know it's not about ourselves alone, and we have a gauge for our story. And there is an important third way that we encourage all of us and all of you to learn and listen and grow here at Wellsprings. And it's less a practice than it is an attitude. I encourage you not to bite off more change than you can devour at once. Take it slowly. The word conversion, that ancient word conversion, it comes from turning. But what happens when you turn Too quickly. Get dizzy. Actually, I am dizzy. (laughs) Avoiding spiritual confusion and avoiding spiritual disorientation is knowing that change happens step by step in ordinary time. It is about redemption in this day, not save for some other day when, when, when you get time. Our great sage Emerson put it this way in his life, and he was living at a time in which uh, there were a group of religious believers who believed that the literal judgment day was coming, and so they took all the roofs off their houses so that there would be nothing to impede them when the rapture put them up to heaven. Well, we still have some literalists like this these days, too, I believe. Emerson's response to this was, none of us have ever learned anything until we know that every day is judgment day. None of us have ever learned anything until we know that every day is judgment day. This is the day to apply the lessons that you have listened to. This is the day to charge your redemption card full. Do not bite off more than you can chew in terms of change, because I will tell you how it will turn out. And perhaps you're there right now. You will become anxious. You will become fearful. You will become dizzy. And you will start to say to yourself, I'm not capable of change. (laughs) You've set out to do more than you can. And I want to tell you, as we start to close, some of my favorite words from Jesus when he is at his most and best acute psychologist. (laughs) So therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Can any of you, can any of you, can any of us, (laughs) include myself, Can any of us, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your days? So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. He concludes, 
Today's trouble is enough for today. Notice he doesn't say don't plan, don't prepare, don't look forward. The word is particular. Don't worry. Because when we worry, what we do is we are always devaluing the stock of our own lives. We are always spending down rather than investing up. And in some of the most beautiful words from the last lecture, Jay who is Randy Pausch's wife. And this is when they know they are spending their last few months together. Says to Randy, it's not helpful if we spend every day dreading tomorrow. She's saying, let's live this day. Enough uncertainty and enough difficulty in it and troubles enough. But enough love, yes. And enough wisdom, yes. And enough life, yes. There is enough here. There is enough with all of you. If we listen and if we pay attention, if you listen to your life and apply what you know and you learn the lesson and the lesson and the lesson after that that you need to, you will find that in fact what you are doing is counting your blessings. And I assure you, blessings there are and blessings there will be if you live fully this day. And may you do so. Amen, and may you live in blessing.